Oh, that gets you going on this Friday morning. Good, because we're going to be talking with Vaughn Palmer now in the Vancouver Sun. Good morning, Vaughn. Hey, good morning, Simi. And as always, my energy level's a lot higher after I listen to the village people. Really? Fond memories of their great show at the Pacific Coliseum. Oh, I don't know, a century ago, but it was fun. Is that your energetic <laughs> voice? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, you know. <laughs> Oh, oh that's mean. what You're supposed to be nicer. You're the nice host on CKM. Oh, am I? Oh, geez. Thanks for that. I'll have to, I'm sorry. I apologize. Uh, we love the village people here. We know you do too. I can picture you dancing up a storm back in the day seeing the village people, right? Yeah, and uh, fortunately, there were no cell phone cameras uh, in those days at the after party. For the ah, no evidence. No evidence. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's talk what's going on in politics here. So we've talked so much about bail reform. Vaughn, is this finally where the BC is getting what they wanted from the federal government? Yeah, it's hair. So the premier has been asking for it for a year and a half, roughly. In fact, back in the days when he was the attorney general, before he became premier, David Eby started asking this. It took a while to persuade him that it was needed. But when he was persuaded, started joining other Canadian premiers saying, Ottawa needs to toughen access to bail. The essence of the change which the federal parliament, Senate and House of Commons, finally passed last fall, which takes effect this month. The essence is, uh, they call it a shift of onus. So when an accused charged with a repeat, charged with a violent offense and with a record of repeat offenses, when that accused appears in court, the onus is now on his lawyers to persuade the judge that the person can get bail, that there's no risk to public safety. In the past, the Crown had to make the case and the courts were under, I guess you could say, a a combination of court decisions and uh, criminal code that in most cases you release the accused. And that's why we had all these cases where people with, you know, multiple offenses, they would be arrested and they'd be out before the end of the day. So that's the shift. Reverse onus, accused goes into court. The prosecutor presents evidence that the person has a record of uh, offenses. It's a violent offense, uh, so use of weapons, violence against intimate partners, that sort of thing. And we're in the new era where we expect, but I guess we'll have to wait and see, that this will reduce the number of repeat violent offenders who are released back onto the streets. We'll see. Right. And the concern is still very much there, right? I saw Save Our Streets back in the news this week. Yeah. So there's two things, two areas of concern. The first area of concern is we still don't know how the courts are going to deal with this. The the civil libertarian argument against this is uh, if you lock somebody up before they've been tried and convicted, you're essentially treating them as if they're guilty. They're locked up and they may be locked up for some time because the court system is overcrowded. The other issue that civil libertarians have raised is uh, we're locking up too many marginalized people, particularly indigenous people. So the courts have to take that into consideration if the accused is an indigenous person. Uh, locking them up uh, for some time is going to add to the incarceration rate for indigenous people. So those are the judges are still going to have to wrestle with that. The other issue, which you've just referred to, Simi, is the Save Our Streets argument. So these are the people who essentially say 
This change deals with repeat violent offenders and they welcome it, but it doesn't deal with problems like chronic disorder and shoplifting, uh, you know, constantly stealing stuff from, especially in the downtown area, um, it, local staffers in these places, they've been instructed by their bosses, don't interfere. You might get stabbed, you might get attacked. Uh, security, yes, these places have security, but the security officers are overwhelmed. Smaller businesses can't afford security. And the police try to respond, but they're overwhelmed. So Save Our Streets is a group of businesses and business organizations that started last year to flag the problem of just uh, the, I, I, you, they're not repeat offenders, they're not violent offenders, but they are far more than a public nuisance. They're a threat to public safety, to public order. They're having a huge impact on businesses because of shoplifting. And the Save Our Streets Coalition wants government action on this. They what? They came up with a press release this week, uh, just listening to the NW News report on it. Their membership has doubled. Growing number of businesses around BC are joining. And they've chosen to flag this problem in an election year. Bail reform doesn't address this. They want more action in other areas. Okay. And I mean, they're not alone in this, right? This has been a problem mm -hmm. in other cities. No, mayors and councillors uh, are on this uh, downtown. I mean, I, I hear anecdotally from people who say downtown Vancouver is not what it used to be even three or four years ago in terms of public safety. Uh, I've seen and heard from people uh, in other communities. There's some grumbling here in Victoria, although it's not on the same scale as uh, Vancouver. I hear from Prince George. Uh, and of course, south of the border, the news media down there are full of problems in San Francisco, in Seattle, in Los Angeles, in Portland, all on the same degree. Vandalism, shoplifting gangs, violence, uh, disorder in the streets. It's affecting tourism. It's affecting local residents. So we're part of a, a, a growing problem. The solutions? Hmm. More police and more security, more arrests? Well, yes, but you know, the critics have also pointed out that a lot of these people have mental health and addiction issues. They have nowhere to go. Uh, locking them up or arresting them and letting them go and arresting them and letting them go doesn't begin to address the problem. So, you know, I, and I think I'll say to save our streets, people aren't just saying we want more people locked up. They're saying we also want a comprehensive plan by government to deal with all of the factors that are contributing to this wave of crime, vandalism, shoplifting, and disorder in our downtown areas. So are we getting mixed messages on what we expect for BC's finances in 2024? Well, let's talk to Vaughn Palmer a little bit more about that this morning. So what is it that the finance minister is actually saying, Vaughn? Well, to you this week, Katrina Conroy said, yeah, we're looking at slower growth in the year ahead, but not, we're not talking recession. Like, things are going to be okay and the government can afford things and BC economy strong and all that. Well, it's an election year, right? From a government's point of view, you do not want the election year to be a downer in terms of economic growth. The problem, and you say mixed messages, there's no mix of messages from the government's economic forecasting council. So they have a dozen independent economists that advise the government on what they expect for 
economic growth. They reported out in December, and what they said was pretty much uh, we're coming off a year of flat growth, and we're looking at a year of flat growth in 2024. So flat is basically growth of less than 1%. You're not even keeping up with the rate at which your bills are growing. Blame interest rates, uh, blame inflation, blame any number of things, but the Forecasting Council is saying, okay, Minister, uh, we're not talking recession, but we're not talking election year budgeting either. You're going to have to be very careful. We'll see just how careful the New Democrats are going to be, but they're facing a significant economic challenge in terms of revenue and forecasting, putting ahead, putting out the budget that we're going to get uh, it'll be tabled in the legislature late February, and that will be the budget for the financial year starting April the 1st and carrying through to the election in October. Right. But there's quite a few ambitious things that the premier has kind of hinted at too, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, again, you know, this line of David Eby's is we're going to show people results before the election. You're going to see this new missing middle housing under construction before the election. You're going to see infrastructure, hospitals, schools, uh, public infrastructure, bridges, uh, all sorts of things under construction. He's going to be able to point to all this. Uh, He's going to keep spending. There's no inclination on the part of the New Democrats to respond to slow economic growth by cutting spending. So, Uh, Yeah, it's a very ambitious political agenda with a lot of spending that the government's promising and an economy that, based on what we've seen so far, isn't likely to cooperate with that by delivering the kind of revenues we've had in the past. BC has done very well, and the economy has delivered a lot of revenue to the provincial government. You know, this time last year, the New Democrats were getting ready to spend $6 billion in surplus revenues, which they did. Uh, And so they're, you know, they have reason to be optimistic. The economy has generally been maintained at a good rate under the NDP, contrary to the expectations of its critics. But at an inconvenient time in the political cycle, we're getting a year of slow growth. So there's going to be need to be a lot of watching to see how they square that with their political ambitions. It is so hard, Vaughn, to figure out where the finances actually are these days, right? Because they predict one thing, they, they are pessimistic yeah. on that, and then it turns out to be better than that, and then maybe not. I, I guess the pandemic, yeah. did the pandemic make it more complicated, or is it just the, uh, yes, the it way did. governments operate? It, it, yes, it did, Simi. I think the initial expectations with the pandemic, with lockdowns and uh, you know people not venturing out of their houses and all of that, was that we were headed for some very bad years economically. Uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry, to her credit, did not lock down the BC economy to the degree that it happened elsewhere. Major construction continued, big projects like Site C continued, and as a result, the economy in BC recovered quickly. Uh, you got, as I said, this time last year, uh, the government had been budgeting for a deficit. They ended up with a $6 billion surplus, which they promptly spent. Okay, so, I mean, that's what governments do, uh, particularly NDP governments. And so here we are. So, yes, it, it is harder to predict. The, the prediction cycle goes something like this. So in February of a given year, we get the budget 
tabled in the legislature. And that's the budget for the year that begins April the 1st and goes to March 31st of the following year. That's the fiscal year. After March 31st, the Auditor General and the Comptroller General tackle the books. And in the summer, July, so we're now uh, way beyond another year, in July, the Auditor General releases the audited financial statements. Those are generally reliable, but you can see from that cycle, we're going to get a budget in February that applies to a year beginning April the 1st. The books won't be closed until well after the October election, and we won't have the audited financial statements until the summer of 2025. So we're going to have to watch carefully, Yes. but at the end of the day, we aren't going to know how all this comes out until long after the votes are counted in October of 2024. I know. Something for us to look forward to this year. Avon, thank you. Bye-bye, Simi. Vaughn Palmer there from the Vancouver Sun. If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com.